Thank you, guys. That was great. We're in a series. The series is called Covenant, and I've been operating from the thesis that there are two different ways to view our relationships. There's the world's way and God's way. And if you do your relationships the world's way, you'll get the world's results. If you do your relationships God's way, you'll get God's results. And the results are dramatically different. And all you have to do is look around at where we are with our relationships in our culture, our country, even in our churches, and we can see the results of following the world. Today, people often view God's word and God's way as old-fashioned and archaic. But God's word still works. Not only does God's word work, but when you violate God's word, it doesn't work. The reality is you don't break God's law. God's laws break you. Where we see in our culture, country, families, people who are being broken because they're breaking God's laws. We're a broken-hearted, pain-filled mess. So what do we do about it? Well, on your notes, on the screen, today I want, want to take a little bit and look at word versus world to see where we're at and how we got there. We're going to look at two first chapters today, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and Romans chapter 1. 1 Corinthians, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Our culture paints those who are trying to follow God's laws regarding marriage and family. It paints us as foolish. They think we're backward, ignorant, Neanderthals, even worse. They, they say we're on the wrong side of history. And I respond, well, they're on the wrong side of prophecy because the Bible clearly tells us where this pathway is going to take us, and it's not pretty. We pursue this path at our peril because God's word will not be mocked. And so the world, because of their spiritual blindness, thinks the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen to that. You know, those of us who have bought into the cross, surrendered to God's ways, have found that it saved our life, it saved our marriage, it saved our family. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Now, that means I don't have to argue with people who reject God's ways. I don't have to argue with people who want to ignore God's word because they're just going to find out that it simply doesn't work. Every time you try to live outside of God's principles, every time you try to live outside of God's will and God's word, you wind up paying the price. God doesn't have to punish people for their disobedience and sin. Their disobedience and sin is punishment enough. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Yet sometimes, even for Christians, God's word seems a little old-fashioned. Come on, Kelly, that's the way my grandpa used to think. We're living in 2015. This is a new day, a new time. These are not new times. We're just getting fed the same old lie that the world, the flesh, and the devil have been using since the beginning of time. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. To see how this plays out, I want to take you to Romans chapter 1. Again, we see this tension between wise and foolish. It says, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols 
made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them. And abandoned them means that God just, just turned them over. He just let them go. He turned them loose to go the way they wanted to go. This isn't the idea of God punishing them. God isn't gunning for them. God isn't gunning for anybody. God is offering salvation, grace, forgiveness, redemption, restoration, eternal life to everybody. Everybody who believes in Christ can have that. Christianity is not exclusive. It's the most inclusive religion there is because Jesus Christ died for the world. Everybody is welcome. But some people choose not to accept him. Some people choose not to follow God's way. They want to go their own way. And God says, okay, let's see how that works out for you. And what they often think is God punishing them is really not God punishing them. It's just God letting them suffer the consequences. They did it to themselves. God didn't do it to them. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, He abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. And then we see the result. What's the result of pursuing the world's way versus God's way? Look at this. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. There's a collapse of the family. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless, and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. That gives us God's viewpoint of where we're at in our culture, in our country. How did we get here? Well, we got here because we did three things. On your notes, number one. We rejected God's wisdom and accepted the world's ways. And we did this because we thought the world knows better. We bought into the lie that the world is smarter, more sophisticated, more knowledgeable than those dry, dusty, restrictive old Bible verses. We have made so much progress. You know, people refer to themselves as secular progressives because they, they claim to have moved beyond an old-fashioned belief in God and they have progressed to a new and better way. But it's not a new and better way. It's just the same old stuff we've tried and failed with before. There's nothing new about today's promiscuity and perversion. It's just the same old sin that's been destroying people since the beginning. We're just too foolish and naive to realize it. Sin hasn't changed. Neither is the God of the Bible. People say, well, Jesus changed. Jesus came along and, and he loved everybody. He was accepting and tolerant. He loved the prostitutes and the drunkards. We're not so crazy about God, but we love Jesus. But what you're missing is that Jesus didn't lower the standards. Jesus actually raised the standards. Over and over we see, see Jesus say things like, you have heard it said, 
thou shalt not commit adultery. And the crowd would go, yeah, that's right, you commit adultery, you need to be put to death. Then Jesus says, well, I say, if you have even looked at and lusted after a woman, you have committed adultery. Jesus said pornography is adultery. And he turned the whole crowd of men into adulterers in one sentence. He convicted every one of them, every one of us. And what man hasn't looked at some woman and lusted? Jesus raised the standard to the point where we're all guilty. And then he went to the cross to pay for our sin. Because we couldn't meet the standard. He said, this is who and what you have become because of the hardness of your heart. And then he went to the cross and paid for it. As the standard got higher, the grace got deeper. Jesus didn't say, oh, don't worry about your sin. Oh, that's okay. Everybody does it. That's just the way you are. No, he raised the standard and then paid the penalty. He raised the standard and offered forgiveness with one condition, that you repent. Jesus said, I'm here to preach repentance because the kingdom of heaven has come. If you'll just admit that you're a sinner, if you will confess your sin, repent, turn from it, turn around, then I'll rescue you from it all. So the real question is this. Will we change the standard or will we let God change us? That's the tension in our culture today. Will we change the standard or will we let God change us? And God's encouragement is don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Don't just say, that's just the way I am. Don't, don't lower the standard so you can meet it. Instead, confess, that's the way I am. God, change me. Number two, we followed our feelings instead of our faith. Feelings instead of faith. Somewhere along the line, someone convinced everybody that feelings can be trusted, that, that feelings should be followed. Personally, I think that person was Barbara Streisand. <laughs> I want to make something clear. Your feelings cannot be trusted. It's okay to have feelings. It's okay to be tempted. Jesus had feelings. Jesus was tempted. He never sinned. But what's not okay is to let your feelings determine the standard for your behavior. You can't let your feelings determine what's right and wrong because your feelings most often are wrong. So the question is, are we going to agree with the Bible on what sin is or will we trust our feelings to be our guide? Which one? Because we all have feelings that are at odds with God's word. I do, you do, everybody does. That's the human dilemma, the human condition. But when we have feelings that are at odds with God's word, we find ourselves at a crossroads where we have to make a decision. Am I going to do what God says, or am I going to do what I feel? Romans 8 says, Letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. You've got to walk in faith, not according to your feelings. Third thing we did, we trusted ourselves more than we trusted God. Our culture doesn't trust God anymore. We think God doesn't know best, and you sure can't trust that musty old Bible. 
And that's a lie. It's a lie. It's not even a new lie. It's the first lie, the same old lie. It's the same lie that the devil told Adam and Eve in the garden. You can't trust God. You need to make up your own mind. You need to trust yourself. So what it boils down to is, who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust culture and your feelings, or are you going to trust God? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. When you start leaning on your own understanding, you have started worshiping yourself instead of worshiping God. When what I think becomes more important than God says, you have slipped into idolatry and self-worship. But no, God says, I need to trust him even in areas I don't understand. Because that's what trust means. Trust means you do it even though you don't know the outcome. You do it whether you don't know how it's going to work out. You do it not knowing what the end result will be. But you trust God anyway. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make your path straight. You buy into God's way and he'll make your life work. He'll make your marriage work. He'll make your family work. You try and do it on your own, you're on your own. So, that's the introduction. Let's look at covenant marriage. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Circle that phrase, ancient paths. We're not looking for the new thing. We're looking for the tried and true thing. We aren't looking for modern family. We're looking for ancient family. Ask where the good way is. Circle that word good. The Hebrew there is reminiscent of Genesis 1. We're at creation. God created the heaven and the earth. God created the plants and animals. God created Adam and Eve. Placed them in the Garden of Eden. After each one of those things, God said, it is good. And so where is the good way? Where is the ancient way? How do we get back to the way that God intended for it to be? Find the good way and walk in it. Why? Why do we walk in the ancient path? Why do we walk in the good way? And you will find rest for your souls. Why do marriages fall apart? Why do families fall apart? Because we get weary in our souls. Marriage is a spiritual endeavor. It's an action of the soul and spirit as much as it is of the body. Marriage is is not just about physical intimacy and getting your sexual needs met. Marriage is not a matter of financial convenience, like finding a roommate to share expenses. Marriage is about your very soul. Let me give you six covenant principles here that will take your marriage back to the ancient way. Some things that will move you from contract to covenant. Number one, hurry home. Hurry home. We need to get back to the priority of spending time together as a family. If we're going to be healthy as families, our schedules must change. Because society's pattern is for everyone to do their own thing. Each member of the family, even the little kids, have their own schedule, their own agenda, to the point where we are individuals living individual lives out of a central geographic hub that used to be called a home. Isaiah says it like this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned, say it with me, to his own way. I'm going to go over there and do my thing. You can go over there and do your thing. The teens can go over there and do their thing. We'll put the little kids in a carpool and send them off to do their thing. We have each turned to our own way. But love does not demand its own way. 
And the challenge is to realize that there is not enough time to do everything. So something is going to have to be left out. Something is going to feel cheated because you don't have time to do everything. Andy Stanley, in his book, Choosing to Cheat, says, Work, family, church, hobbies, fitness, housekeeping, socializing, sleep. We only have 24 hours in each day. We simply can't fit everything in. And what we choose to cheat is a clear announcement of our values. When you come home an hour earlier, miss a round of golf, or let the dishes sit while you play with your child, you make your family feel valued and secure. It's time to restore your vision of what really matters and make courageous decisions about your time. When I worked for Citibank, I worked a lot of hours. I'd work 6, 12, 14-hour days. I mean, it was just an insane number of hours. We all did. And, and one of the guys I worked with said, I've been working so many hours that my wife told me our three-year-old son asked her, did that big guy eat all the chips? <laughs> and I did what you just did. I mean, honestly, we all thought, well, that's, that's kind of cute. And then the more I thought about it, I realized that little boy doesn't have a father. He has a big guy who eats all the chips. And it wasn't 10 weeks later his wife filed for divorce and I started looking for a different job. You've got to get control of your schedule. Number two, cultivate communication. The average couple spends four minutes a day in communication. Four minutes a day. We spend 400 minutes on Facebook, four minutes in conversation with our spouse. It's time to reintroduce the art of conversation in our marriages and families. It's time to start talking with one another again. Now, men and women are different. The average man speaks 15,000 words a day. The average woman speaks 30,000 words a day. As a guy, I'm above average. I'm, I'm a talker. In fact, I was 12 years old before I realized my name wasn't Kelly Shut Up. Okay? <laughs> But I tend to use up all of my words at work, so when I get home, I'm, I'm kind of done. And Katie saves up all her words until I get home and then starts in. And, and maybe you guys have experienced that too. So Ben, let me help you out with this. Let me give you a little tip here that, that four words, write these down. If you're not taking notes, write them on your hand. They'll, they'll save your marriage. Four words. And then what happened? Guys, you say that, that's good for another thousand words for her. <laughs> then what happened? She's off. Okay, try that. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. I've got to make it a priority to watch my words. I choose to speak life into my wife instead of death. I choose to speak life into my kids instead of death. Because what you speak with your tongue is going to be the fruit that you eat. You speak words of death, and death will be the fruit in your relationship. You speak words of life, and life will be the fruit in your relationship. That's the power of the tongue. You've got to cultivate communication in order to bear the right kind of fruit. Number three, nourish romance. Some of you need to throw a log on the fire. Some of you, the last time you said, honey, turn off the lights and lock the door, was when your mother-in-law pulled in the driveway and you were going to pretend you weren't home. Okay? So you need to nourish romance. 
not sensuality. There is a difference between stimulating sensuality and satisfying sensitivity. And Hollywood and its movies about bondage and perverse sex and the internet with dehumanizing porn, they fuel our sensuality, but they rob us of our sensitivity. George Orwell, in his book, 1984. How many of you read 1984 before 1984? Any of you? About the three of us, okay? In, in that book, Orwell predicted that one of the things that would bring about the death of society was that the government would promote sex without love. Sex without commitment. Sex without covenant. Why is the government so hot to trot to pass out condoms in school and give everybody free contraception? I'll tell you why. It's because it ultimately destroys the family and it gives more power to the state. We are in a spiritual battle for our families. And one of the areas is in the area of, of, spiritual, of sensuality versus romance. We need to get back to romance. We need to make love, not porn. I'm going to give you ten romance busters and ten romance builders. I'm going to give them to you real quick. You do not have time to write them all down. Just look for one that, oh yeah, and latch onto it. So ten romance busters. Overcommitment and physical exhaustion. Debt and conflict over money. Selfishness. Interference from in-laws. Unrealistic expectations. The, the pressure we put on ourselves, put on our spouses to look just right, act just right. Alcohol and substance abuse. Pornography and gambling and addiction. The grass is greener syndrome. Don't fall for the lie that the grass is greener over there. If the grass is greener over there, it's because the water bill's higher. Okay? If the grass is greener over there, it's because there's more fertilizer. You can't afford it. Don't go over there. And then business success and business failure. Both of those kill romance because they consume so much of our time. Now, ten romance builders. First, love yourself. Love yourself first. That doesn't mean be selfish. It means you let Jesus heal your broken heart so that you have the capacity to love other people out of a whole heart. You start each day with a hug. Say, I love you every time you part ways. Compliment freely and often. Slow down. Go on a date once a week. Kiss unexpectedly. Apologize sincerely. Let her give you directions when you're lost. Yeah. Laugh at his jokes. The, the, the goal is to rejoice in the wife of your youth. Get back to the passion, the devotion, the fire you had when you first married her. May you ever be captivated by her love. Captivated by her love. The Hebrew means delighted, intoxicated, exhilarated, ravished by her love. I mean, when was the last time you were ravished? Pastor, if you'd hurry up and finish this sermon, I could get home and maybe I'd have a shot. Next, you want to celebrate differences. The world says, highlight your differences. Buy into the lie that you're not compatible. God says, no, it's your differences that make you great. God designed you to be different than your spouse. You know, I've made that point several times through this series. Katie and I are just extremely different. It was, it was scientifically confirmed for us last week in Growth Track Discovery 301. 
We, we, we went to, through the growth track class. We took our personality test. We took our spiritual gifts test. And once again, where my numbers are high, her numbers are low. Where her numbers are high, my numbers are low. I said, dear, what's your lowest on the spiritual gifts test? She said, I got one that's a four. Lowest number you can get is a three. So she's, this is about as low as she can get. I looked at my gift. I'm a 13. That's almost as high as you can get. She says, what's your lowest? I said, well, it's a six. I says, what are you on that gift? She says, I'm a 15. I mean, we're just the exact opposite. Same true with our personality thing. I mean, by the world standards, we are incompatible. For me, I'm exhilarated. I'm intoxicated. I am ravished. I found someone who counterbalances, someone who completes me. I don't need someone just like me. I need someone different than me. You know, that's the way God designed us. When God looked at Adam, he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the man to be all one. So God made someone completely different than Adam. He didn't make another Adam. He made an Eve. He made a woman to complete Adam, to complete the set. Male and female, he made them. You need to celebrate your differences. Learn learn to discern and understand and celebrate your differences. Homes are built on the foundation of wisdom and understanding. That's what happens when you celebrate your differences. Rather than letting them be a source of conflict, let the differences be a source of celebration. Number five, honor your vows. Honor your vows. This one's really countercultural. I mean, everybody says, till death do us part in their wedding vows because it sounds so poetic. But the reality of till death do us part means you are going to stick together until one of you is standing next to a casket going, yay, we made it. (laughs) That's the reality of it. You know, today people don't want to say till death do us part. The trend now is to take that out of the vows or to say something like, as long as we both shall love. As long as we both shall love. I would have been married six weeks. <laughs> I mean, you come out of, out of the, you know, the intensity of an engagement and, and the emotional high of a wedding and a honeymoon and you come into the reality of a wh- marriage. I mean, you know, it was the commitment that we made to honor our vows that motivated us to work it out. Commitment means being willing to be unhappy until we work it out. And over the last 41 years, we've had unhappy seasons in our marriage where life was hard, and instead of being happy, we had to settle for being committed. Happiness wasn't on the horizon. If it weren't for the commitment, we wouldn't have made it. But because of the commitment, we worked it out we got to happy again. We're back to ravished. <laughs> Culture says you need to look out for yourself. Look out for number one. If you're not happy, you need to get out of it. But that approach is not working. People aren't happier. People are more miserable. Because they have forgotten what God has said about marriage. God says give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. To honor marriage means you recognize its value, its worth, its importance. Marriage isn't something you throw away when you're just not happy with it anymore. Marriage is something worth fighting for, worth living for, worth pouring your life into. Marriage is honorable. But our culture today doesn't honor marriage. It, it mocks it, trashes it, perverts it, corrupts it, counterfeits it. From TV sitcoms to movies to books, marriage is mocked and ridiculed and dishonored. God calls his people to a higher standard. And he provides a deeper grace in order to reach that standard. 
But you got to commit. You got to pursue it. You got to honor it. And I know some of you are thinking, Kelly, you're asking me to do something I just can't do. You're asking me to give more than I have to give. I don't have it in myself to make this marriage work. Now we're getting somewhere. Because look at the last point trust God. Because unless the Lord builds the house, it's builders labor in vain. If you're trying to build your marriage, your family, your household on your own design, on your own plan, out of your own strength, if you're trying to do your relationships uh, according to your way or the world's way instead of God's way, you are laboring in vain. You, you, You are laboring for no purpose. You are on a fool's errand. Your efforts will not succeed. It just won't work. Why? Because God designed marriage for His glory, not yours. Your marriage is more about God and Christ and the church than it is about you. And until you surrender yourself to that and begin to pursue that understanding with wisdom and passion, you're simply wearing yourself out. But when you surrender to God's ways, when you seek the ancient path, the good way, God will begin to make your path straight and you will find rest for your soul. Let's pray together. God, I just pray for the marriages represented here today. I just pray that you would open our hearts and minds, open our eyes to see the wonderful plan that you have for us. That you'd help us to to seek that ancient path, those good ways that we would pursue the plan you have for our relationships, for our marriages, for our family. God, help us to learn the skills and the how-tos and even the want-tos that we need to have in our life in order to follow your plan. But God, most of all, we just pray that you would give us the grace, give us the strength, give us the power. We don't have it in ourselves. We need your help. You've set a standard that we cannot reach apart from the power of Christ, the presence of your Spirit, without the guidance and wisdom of your Word. God, I just would pray that you'd help us to live lives of meaning and purpose, even in our marriages. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.